So I've decided that that video is like a Christmas Rorschach test because everyone I talk to has very different reactions to that video based on their own experiences or expectations of Christmas. Because I think that's true about this season that there is an expectation that, that Christmas should be special, that our lives should be more special than they are. And I think what's so interesting about December is that the first 11 months of the year, people are content to go through the ordinary routine rut of their lives. And it just so this is what we do. I work, I go to school, I drive people around. I mean, whatever it is, you just live your routine. And then December hits and it's like we're suddenly reminded that, hey, things are supposed to be special once in a while. And we, we want to embrace and experience this specialness of Christmas. And you'll notice that even the stories we tell about Christmas are about people noticing this lack. That, that Christmas is supposed to be special, there's supposed to be a Christmas spirit, but it just feels like we're never quite there. We're not actually experiencing and feeling this thing we're supposed to feel. Which is why I suspect so many of our classic Christmas stories are actually built around this lack, this idea that there's something missing around Christmas. You know, they tell the story of people who are lonely at Christmas. Or they tell the story of people who are brokenhearted at Christmas. People whose relationships aren't what they want them to be. Or we tell the stories of people who are hard-hearted at Christmas, who are lacking some sort of love for their fellow human being. Or people who are just looking for something special to believe in at this time of year. See, there's this idea that Christmas is supposed to be special. And if we're not feeling it, if we're not experiencing it, then there's something wrong with us, there's something wrong with our life we're missing out on something that we should be having. I don't know about you, when, when my family's feeling that way, when we're feeling overwhelmed by the errands and the chores and the busyness of December, and we're not really feeling the Christmas spirit in our household, uh, we have one pretty sure remedy, uh, which is we will load everyone up in the car and we'll drive around and we'll look at other people's Christmas lights. Right? There's something special about seeing people's houses all lit up in unique ways that, that actually drives home this Christmas spirit, this nebulous thing that, that we want so desperately in our life. And in case you have not had a chance to drive around and look at Christmas lights this year, I want to give you an opportunity to experience some of that specialness this morning. So check this out. Best looking house in town, Russ. Welcome to the show. 
Guys, it keeps going. <laughs> I had to cut it off. We have other stuff to talk about. But I don't know about you. Christmas did not start for me emotionally until I watched that video earlier this week. And then I was in Christmas mode. Hope it did a little something similar for you. And if it wasn't enough, if you have not yet been to our Sounds of Christmas, we have one last show today at 2 p.m. You should absolutely come check that out. You'll experience that and so much more if you come to that show. All right, but if that, that feels like Christmas spirit, doesn't it? It feels like that, that's it. That's, that's tapped into this nebulous thing that we desire so much in the season. And it's that particular expectation that we're going to be talking about today. That, that when you add tinsel and lights, that, there's something about that act, that thing, that, that taps into whatever it is we think we're missing at Christmas. See, the thing about Christmas tree lights is... Not that they're beautiful, I mean, although they are, it's beautiful to have lights on a tree, but it's that it's out of the ordinary. In the, in the normal course of things, trees don't have lights on them. It's that we took something ordinary and we added something special and beautiful to it that makes a Christmas tree such a compelling symbol. It connects us with something deep and transcendent that we've been looking for at Christmas. But I don't think that's actually just a Christmas problem. I think that human beings are, are truly hardwired to long and crave for some sort of a connection to the supernatural, to the divine, to the transcendent. We're not content to live ordinary lives the way everything else, uh, every other species uh, and creature is. There's something about the way God hardwired us that he wanted us to connect with him, that we are not content if our life is purely ordinary. And we're truly unique in that. I don't think that you have iguanas sitting here thinking like, I wish there was more to life than lying in a sun, you know, in the sun on a rock. But humans do. We think there's got to be more to life than just going to work, going to school, doing the thing, you know, being in the routine. We, we, we crave something more. And I think Christmas um, exaggerates that feeling. It makes us feel it more deeply, but it's not a uniquely Christmas feeling. It's something that we've always wanted. And when you look back at all of human culture, anything that's ever been written down, every culture, every religion has always had a craving for the numinous, for something larger than life, something that can't be reduced to survival of the fittest or just mere existence. In fact, we even see it in our own narrative, in our own scripture. If we look all the way back at the beginning with God's own people, there is this desire, this longing to connect with the divine in a, in a personal, concrete kind of a way. You see, there's this moment where God's people had been crying out for rescue, and, uh, and God rescued them. They'd been slaves in Egypt, and God sent them a leader, a man named Moses. And Moses said, I'm here in the name of God, and I'm going to rescue you. And then God's going to do these miraculous things. And a lot of miraculous things happened. Um, there, were, there were flies and gnats and boils and, and rivers flowing with blood. I mean, all these miraculous things. The Israelites had all of the evidence in the world that there was a God who was for them, who was saving them. 
And yet it wasn't enough. They, they were constantly complaining to Moses and saying, we don't really feel like there's this God that's for us. Like we know these miracles happened, but, but we've not actually met with God. We've not actually connected with the divine. We've just witnessed some unexplainable things. And so Moses and God actually responded to that. And, they, and God himself wanted to meet with his people. And so this moment came where Moses had actually said, all right, guys, we're going to meet with God. We're going to experience this transcendent presence of an omnipotent being. And here's how that went down in Exodus. On the morning of the third day that they were camped around Mount Sinai, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. They actually get the privilege of meeting with the supreme being. And they stood at the foot of the mountain and Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. When an infinite being, the one who created and ordered the cosmos, enters into the atmosphere, it disrupts things a bit. It's fire and clouds and smoke and shaking of you know, earthquakes. And if you saw the people's reaction, they weren't, they weren't quite so overjoyed in that moment. It says that they trembled in fear. I think there's actually been a pretty decent uh, visual representation of that in, in an action movie director, Roland Emmerich, when he, when he pictures what an alien invasion looks like, I think he gets a little close to this moment at Mount Sinai. Check out this brief clip. And that's eerily similar to the description in the Bible, is it not? I mean, this presence of a huge thing that, that's preceded with flames and smoke and the disruption of the atmosphere. And so the reaction of the people was not, oh, yay, we met God. The reaction was, we want God to go back away. And they actually said to Moses, hey, please don't make us do that ever again. You just meet with God. You just talk to him. We're going to stay away. And, and this experience of the divine was too overwhelming, too awful in the original sense of that word. It was too much for them. And here's where we, we begin to see the heart of God. God's reaction to his people trembling in fear at his presence was to actually accommodate them and to say, I want to meet with you so bad. I want to dwell among you. I want to be present with these people that I love. And he wanted to find a way to limit his glory so that they could actually be with him and feel his presence in a supernatural way without being so overwhelmed. And so God actually decided in all of his omnipotence, in all of his majesty, in all of his infinite being, he decided to confine his presence, his glory, to a box. A box. And he had Moses and the Israelites build it, and they called it the Ark of the Covenant. He said, all right, build this box, and I'm going to take my glory of my presence, and I'm going to put it in a box, so maybe it won't be so overwhelming and so terrifying for you. 
And then here's what happened when they finished building the box. And so then that cloud that had been hovering over Mount Sinai now covered the tent of meeting that they put the box in. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it so densely and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This presence of God, they actually had to come up with a word for it that they hadn't used uh, in this way before. That word glory that you saw there was a word that before this time had just meant um, someone's reputation. You would talk about the reputation of a person. That's that thing that precedes them. Like you haven't necessarily met them directly or personally, but you've heard their reputation. Their reputation goes ahead of them. And they took that word reputation and they applied it to this supernatural, overwhelming evidence of the presence of God. That before you even got to the God part, you saw the fire and the smoke and the flames and the clouds and the earthquakes. And they called that the reputation, the glory of God. And then they built a box and they put the glory of God in it. And it was still so overwhelming, so heavy, so weighty that when the, when the glory of God descended on the tabernacle, when it went into the box, Moses himself couldn't get near it because God's presence is still so overwhelming. But what it did was it showed his people that wherever they were, God wanted to be too. And everywhere they went, and they were about to wander the wilderness for the next 40 years, everywhere they went, they took that tabernacle with them, which meant that everywhere they went, the presence of God went with them too, and the glory of God was there in a real visual way. And then eventually they settled down and they got a capital city in Jerusalem, and they built up a palace and walls and got settled And they said, it doesn't seem right that God would stay in this tiny box in a tent like we're camping. And so the kings of God asked if they could build him a worthy uh, residence for his dwelling, for his presence. And so Solomon, one of the kings, built a temple, spent untold countless wealth, years on this project, all of the finest things from around the known world, and they built a temple and then they had a ceremony of dedication. And at the end of the ceremony, when Solomon finished praying, look what happened. Fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices in front of the temple. And then the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And now notice what happens when when, when the glory of the Lord comes. And the priest couldn't enter the temple of the Lord, just like Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle, because the glory of the Lord filled it. The weightiness and the presence of God was so big, they could not enter. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. The glory of God was in a place that they could count on. It was in this temple forever, and his people could always know that, the, that God was with them because they experienced this special, supernatural, transcendent moment. They saw the fire and the flame, the cloud descending, this presence of God that everyone could feel and sense and see. And then the thousand years went by with nothing like that again. A thousand years and God's people are still visiting the temple regularly, they're still doing all the rituals, but they're not actually experiencing any sort of presence of God. They're not seeing a glory. There's, there's nothing special about what they're doing in the temple. Which brings us to the beginning 
of the Christmas story. This is what we're going to look at today. You go to Luke 1. And so now this is um, a thousand years later. They've actually had to rebuild that temple. It had been destroyed. And so Herod rebuilt the temple. And so in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Just a regular guy who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into where? The same place that we just read about, the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside while he was the only one who went in. Zechariah, he's just a guy. Not only is he just a guy, he's a guy who has no children. And in a, a time where your glory, your reputation, your lineage, your legacy, all of it just depended on your children, this is a guy that was destined to be forgotten by history. And he's doing this thing that they've been doing every year for a thousand years. It's the one time where they go and they, they recreate this moment that Solomon initiated and they, they burn the incense and they sacrifice on the altar and they remember of a time when God's presence used to dwell in this temple and where it was obvious with supernatural glory and power. And this is what Zechariah gets to do. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But again, it's just become kind of rote and mundane, something they do every year. But this year, this year something different happens. While Zechariah is in there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, one of the great prophets, to make ready a people prepared for the coming of the Lord." And notice that language, that God who has been constantly trying to come to his people, be present with them, connect with them. You know, thousands of years before at Mount Sinai, Moses said, all right, the Lord's going to come on this mountain. And the people were terrified. And then, and then he said, no, no, the Lord's going to come and dwell in this tabernacle. And the people brought that with them everywhere. And then the Lord came and dwelt in the temple where Zechariah is leading the religious services. And an angel comes and says, the Lord is coming to dwell in a new way. Something you never uh, would have predicted before in your life in a way that you're not even used to looking for God's glory. You're used to God's glory being fire and smoke and light on a mountain or settling on a temple. God's doing something new. And Zechariah responded the way you would expect uh, a holy, righteous, good guy to react. He didn't believe it. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. 
And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Gabriel experiences God's glory daily, constantly, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And again, there's a glimpse here of the character and the nature of God, that he wants us to believe and to trust in his goodwill towards us, so much that he's always giving us evidence of it. And so when he, when he does dwell and be present, we, we see it. We see that physical evidence. Or in this moment where Zechariah doubts, he says, all right, you want, you want some proof in the meantime? And, and he miraculously strikes Zechariah silent for the next nine months. So that Zechariah knew that there was something truly powerful, that he, that he really had seen an angel. He hadn't just imagined it or had some sort of an incense hallucination, that he truly something miraculous and transcendent had happened. And then nine months later, when his baby's born, the Holy Spirit supernaturally opens his mouth again and gives him a prophetic prayer to speak. And here's just a brief part of what, that prayer that he prayed. Zechariah said, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord himself to prepare the way for him to come and dwell among his people, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. There are a lot of miracles that go down throughout the Christmas story. There's virgin births, and there's old people who shouldn't be able to give birth, and there's wise men following a star that leads them to God himself, and all these things happening. But in the midst of all of it, don't miss the point. The point is that God, who has been repeatedly trying to find new ways to dwell among his people, to let us experience his transcendent presence, came up with a way that no one was expecting, to bring his glory in a way that wasn't going to terrify us or frighten us, but to bring his light that shines into the darkness, the light of salvation for all mankind. That God, who had brought his glory to a mountain, that had contained his glory to a box, who had dwelt in a beautiful temple, was now encapsulating his glory in a baby in a manger. And that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, was the fullness of God's power and might. All of that transcendent, special, divine, supernatural connection that we crave was all contained in one person. And you start to get a glimpse of why Jesus Christ was so compelling. I mean, he, he was a prophet of God. Well, there were lots of prophets of God. John was a prophet of God. Elijah was a prophet of God. And there were lots of those. He did miracles. Other people did miracles in the name and power of God. He taught things. Well, there were other teachers. There were plenty of rabbis walking around back then. I think the difference was not that Jesus did miracles or teaching or, or, or prophecy. The difference was he had the glory of God in him, which meant that he had that weightiness, that, that gravitas that no one had ever experienced before. Picture the person that you know that is the most noble, eminent, respectable, weighty person that you've ever encountered, a great boss or a CEO or someone that just has that presence that everywhere they go, they command the room. 
And that's nothing compared to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing compared to the impact and the impression he made. Because when God enters the atmosphere, everything else reacts. That's who Jesus Christ was. That's, that's why, he, why he made such an impact the way he did. Because he had the fullness of the glory of God. But it wasn't just in his gravitas and in the weightiness and in his reputation and experience of God. It's that he used it not to blast human beings, not to overwhelm us with fire and smoke, but to shine the light of God into the darkness of our hearts and our lives. As one of his followers later summarized in a letter to the, the Hebrews, he said this, Jesus Christ the Son is actually the radiance of God's glory. That thing that the Hebrews had to, had to borrow this word that meant heaviness and reputation and called it glory. That he now took that and it didn't just mean heaviness anymore, now it meant the radiance and the light of God. And the son himself was the exact representation of his being. God had literally confined himself, just like he did to a box, confined himself to a human being. And that Christ himself is the one who is sustaining all things in the universe by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, that question, as we long for that spark of connection to the divine, as we long for something supernatural and extraordinary compared to our ordinary mundane lives, the answer to the question, where is God? It had always been things like, oh, over in that mountain, that holy mountain, or in that tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant, or in this beautiful temple that Herod constructed. And the answer to that question changed and became, where is God? He is in Jesus Christ, who's walking the earth, shining his light everywhere he goes, purifying us from our sins, conquering death and the darkness, and ascending to sit at the throne in heaven. But if that was the end of the Christmas story, then we would actually be in the same position as Zechariah and all of those people that were living in darkness for a thousand years. That we would be looking back and remembering this moment, this moment where God's glory was here and and we don't have it anymore, but it, it was there once upon a time and it was great that it was. And now we live in darkness and we live in ordinariness and we just live in the mundane. But there was a time in our history that God's glory was here, but now it's up in heaven and we just have to get by without it. That's not actually the end of the Christmas story. The answer to the question, where is God, is not that he was just in Jesus Christ and now it's up in heaven. The answer to the question, where is the glory of God, is it's in you and it's in me. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, look, now Jesus Christ the Lord is the Spirit. He is God. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, we ourselves are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Jesus, in his resurrection, in his conquering of death, took that light, that glory, that presence of God and didn't just keep it trapped inside of himself. He spread it out to everyone who is redeemed from death and darkness. 
which means that we now are the ones reflecting God's glory in the world. Where is God's glory? It's not in a temple. It's not even in one human being. It's in all of us who've experienced the life-giving light of God, which means that you and I right here and right now are walking Christmas trees because everywhere you go, you are living proof of the goodness and light of God that shines in the darkness. You are that supernatural connection that we long for. You have it inside of you right here and right now. And it has been from the moment you were born. It has been ever since 2,000 years ago when Christ put his light in us. But the question remains, I don't generally feel like a walking Christmas tree in December. I feel overwhelmed by the, the burdens of the year, the errands, the, the things that Christmas season tends to pile on, the extra gift shopping, the, the property tax bill that, that shows up every December. I don't feel like a walking Christmas tree. I feel like someone who needs to drive around and experience the Christmas lights of other people to just get a little bit of a feel of that supernatural, transcendent Christmas glory. So what's wrong? What is the disconnect? How can the Bible claim that we are the glory of God, we are the lights shining in a dark world because we actually have God's fullness in us? And yet we feel so dark. Well, I, I think it's because we're living in a way that, um, in fact, is kind of exam- exemplified in one of our other classic Christmas stories. Uh, a guy named Clark Griswold who wanted nothing more than to shine a little bit of that Christmas glory in his neighborhood. And he spent his entire month of December laying out 25,000 Christmas lights all over his house, and he can't get them to work. And he's checked all of the fuses, and he's checked the circuit breakers, and he's tested every light bulb individually, and there's still no light shining at his house until this moment happens. I'll check him back. to do it. about what the what's going on here 
the whole time. He had the light available the whole time. There was a switch in the garage that had been turned off. But once that switch flipped, suddenly all of the darkness of his Christmas season faded, didn't it? The jerky in-laws, the boss that isn't giving him a raise, the dream pool that's never going to happen, all of that suddenly didn't matter when that house lit up the way it did, right? And so the question is, if we've all got this, this light that's shining, but it doesn't feel like it, what's the switch that needs to flip? And I think the clue is in 2 Corinthians 3 that we just read a moment ago. It says, the, the way we have that glory of God shining in us is when our unveiled faces reflect the light of Christ. When we're casting our eyes on this on this God who loves us so much, who desired to be present with us so much, he has spent all of recorded human history trying new ways to be present with us so that we feel and experience the divine connection that he wired us to feel. And when we look at Christ, our faces can't help but reflect that glory and light of God. I love that passage because reflecting is a passive thing. It's not something we have to do. It's not something we have to manufacture. A mirror is just a mirror, but whatever it's looking at is what it's going to reflect. Which means we have the opportunity right here and now at Christmas to cast our eyes and our faces at the darkness and the things that are lacking all around us. And there's plenty to look at that is. To look at the people who are themselves overwhelmed with the burdens of the season, who are grumpy and short-tempered and a little meaner this time of year or a little more worried about the snow, and so they're gonna cut you off because they're gonna make sure they get home safely, whatever else happens. And we can look at those things and we can reflect them, or we can look at a God who let nothing stand in his way of connecting with us and filling us with his light. And if we make that choice, if we flip that switch, suddenly we become the Christmas trees that shine light into the darkness ourselves. Suddenly, we don't let the darkness overwhelm our spirits. We let our spirit scare away, chase away all of the darkness around us. Because that light of Christ, it's been in you this whole time. You didn't have to go anywhere else looking for it. Just look at the face of the one who loved you enough to die for you. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have made your intentions towards us so clear over the course of history that over and over again, you show your desire to dwell with us, to be present with us, to have your glory light up our hearts, not overwhelm our senses. And so Lord, now in the face of whatever burdens are going on in December, 
whatever gap there is between our expectations and hope for the season and what we're experiencing, Lord, I pray that you would keep our faces pointed at you. That we become your trophies. That we are shining the glory of your reputation because we are your redeemed children who have experienced the goodness and light of God. Lord, help us to shine that light before all who need it this Christmas season. We pray in your holy name. Amen. As I've been saying, the question is not whether you have the light of God in you. You do. Not because of anything you've done, but because Christ put it in you when he conquered death for your sake. So the question becomes, how have you reflected that light? Or how have you drawn the shutters over it? How have you resisted that light of God that wants so badly to well up inside you and light up your life and light up others? And so I invite you to take, take a little bit of time and reflect on that question.